The following episode of the 9pm Edict isn't. Hello, I'm Stilgarian, and no, it isn't. This is something different. This is something special-ish. Uh, a few days ago, I was the guest co-host on Well May We Say, an Australian politics podcast from Jeremy Siapico in Melbourne. We had fun. We had opinions on things. And I thought you might like it as a change. This episode is titled... A fast-moving situation. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that Australia, the modern nation, has never made a genuine attempt to address the crimes of the past following colonisation. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 121 for Friday 13th of March 2020. Hello, this is Future Jeremy recording on Sunday afternoon, two days after we recorded this podcast. It took me a little while to edit. Obviously, since we recorded on Friday afternoon, there have been a whole lot of developments, uh, everything from the government appearing to have infected itself, from Peter Dutton through Morrison to the Trumps to the Cabinet to all the Premiers. There's pictures of Josh Frydenberg after having taken a coronavirus test and then just standing around with kids at, at uh, Melbourne private school. They just seem to be incredibly casual about it. And we've had the chief medical officer declaring that it's fine for us to hang out in, in uh, groups as long as we haven't been overseas and the groups aren't more than 500, which is bonkers. They keep telling us that they're doing everything in a cautious way, an abundance of caution, and that we're doing better than comparable countries rather than we should be doing as well as possibly can be done. Morrison doesn't think the schools should shut down tomorrow. Essentially, we're being governed by lunatics. And meanwhile, it's increasingly obvious that Australians don't believe them, all you need to do to check that theory is to go to a supermarket right now. Because apart from, you know, the occasional Brussels sprouts and fennel, and what did Denise just find? Palm olive soap for men. Like, the random items that have been left behind. But otherwise, those shelves are bare. And there's also footage you can see on Twitter right now of pretty much a full-on brawl at Woolworths this afternoon. But it's similar everywhere. It's going to be remarkable seeing how this comes back because it's clear that we have an incompetent government that doesn't have any intention of following best practice and flattening the curve, but simply of leaving everything to the last minute. And Morrison out there saying, we're going to develop these measures as time goes on rather than developing the best ones, the most cautious ones right now. They had the health minister Hunt and the chief medical officer Murphy this morning on Insiders. Like, now they're shaking people's hands, saying, no, no, there's no reason why we shouldn't be shaking hands. Later this afternoon, Morrison's saying, no, we probably should stop shaking hands. Why on earth was that not obvious this morning? Anyway, the rest of the podcast goes into quite some detail as we have a genuine discussion about where things were on Friday, which is otherwise still prevalent, but which is otherwise still pertinent. But uh, I figured that it was necessary to have a quick drop-in update so that this isn't completely out of date. But then again, I'd better upload this pretty quickly because I suspect later this evening, even this update mid-Sunday afternoon will be out of date. So, up we go. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening in the country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is Stilgarian. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome for the first time, Stilgarian. It is for the first time, yes, Jeremy. Good to be here. So where would people know you most from other than at Stilgarian on Twitter and a a unique name that that nobody will have forgotten after seeing the first time? Still for short is just fine for people who get into conversations like this. I'm known mostly for writing for the tech media and in particular ZDNet and I write a lot about the cybers. Cyber crime, cyber policy, cyber espionage, uh, cyber security, uh, privacy policy, government internet policy, and all that sort of thing. Um, and I also have a podcast which no one should ever listen to called The 9pm Edict, which is uh, that extremely rare genre, uh, namely a white middle-aged man complaining about things. 
Yeah, that's a... Uh, anyway, let's talk about something. I thought that's a, a much underserved market, <clears throat> obviously. Uh, yeah, no, no, you, can, you can never have too many of those. They're, they're important <laughs> and... Uh, and every, I think everybody enjoys, you know, middle-aged white men talking about stuff. So as two middle-aged white men talk, who, who anticipate uh, talking about <laughs> politics in a podcast that you're listening to right now, I touched on the disastrous situation the world faces <laughs> in relation to the coronavirus last week. But weirdly enough, it didn't get resolved uh, in the time between then and now and seems to be getting worse. So I guess we have to go back to it because uh, this is being recorded on Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had... The Prime Minister last night announcing what he intends to do about it. Uh, and then I believe this morning he was saying, but that's fine, unless you're actually symptomatic, you know, feel free to go to the footy on the weekend. Uh, and then I think this afternoon he's come out and said that large gatherings should be shut down, but not until after the weekend for some reason. Yes, we're, we're seeing a very strange um iteration of the messages as we go along and and some people would say software developers would say that's a good thing you're debugging it in production though but that's how you would hope software developers would hope that you can take when a problem has already been solved by another developer or for example in this case analogously another nation uh, perhaps you could adapt that a bit faster because you can see what's happened in the other project ahead of time rather than going through the same slow development cycle and reinventing the wheel each time? Well, in an ideal world uh, with intelligent and educated people, that sort of thing would be done. Yes, I agree. But at least we do now have, as many nations have done, banned large events or at least highly No, we haven't. We've said we will on Monday. On on Monday. Monday. Now, it depends, Jeremy. Are you a wearer of tinfoil hats? No. All right. Then the reason given at the press conference was that, according to the uh, chief medical officer, a, a couple of days like that is not going to be critical. It's that we need to ramp up these defences. Sorry, who is the chief medical officer and what exactly did they say rather than being paraphrased through Scott Morrison? Because I find it difficult to believe that any kind of competent medical professional, particularly given that they know that the coronavirus a big part of it is that it is quite contagious while people are asymptomatic and that, that you don't find out till later that, oh, wait a minute, there were a lot more people who were already infected by the time they showed symptoms. They had already spread it further. So like, at this point, it's the cat is clearly out of the bag. Why would you allow those events to go ahead? As a, Why is it not an immediate? No, they're shut down now. Well, uh, using my privilege as a middle-aged white man, um, I would like to speculate based on, I should say, I have uh, a couple of good friends who work in epidemiology of infectious diseases and are privy to some of the data modelling. So they don't reveal the details. They're very good government employees, but we discuss the broad principles. And the thing is here, pretty much... Everyone, for some value of everyone, they're talking about what, you know, the majority of people, 70% or 25% of people will eventually get it at some point in the next years. So the strategy is really to delay any sudden spikes because sudden spikes of infection will overwhelm uh, emergency rooms and so on. But if they can deal with that spread out over six months, that's fine. It's terrible nothing's really going to change in much in terms of uh, morbidity, morbidity getting the disease. Well, no, a huge, there's a huge difference because if you're doing it over the, with a flat curve over that time period so the medical system can deal with it and you don't have the situation like in Italy where they've been overwhelmed and people, they have to triage and basically go, sorry, we're full you're up. less likely to make it. So no, like that's where the rate, the death rate skyrockets. Yes. Because if, if you get this giant spike now, and that's what you get when you're not shutting things down right away. Why are they... I don't understand what the rationale is. Even this morning, him's out there saying, ah, it's fine to go to the footy. Why? why who was advising him? And on what, on what... Like, Are they not aware of what's happening? Well, obviously, they changed the message during the course of the day. And my understanding is that they're you know, probably having briefings every day, or if not every day, every couple of days. And I would imagine that since they've switched into emergency mode, there's a briefing every day, and today's briefing was, hey, Scott, let's do this. Now, I invite you now to put on your tinfoil hat, and this will cause certain people on Twitter to block me for saying this, but... 
Okay. Scott has I'll said. I'll, I'll put it okay. Out. So we've, we've had Cam. We've had Cam from the Conspiracy Podcast on many times. All right. I'm going, I'm going to borrow one of one of his hats. It's not that big a conspiracy. Hillsong has a major conference this weekend, and well, yeah, but presumably he wants those people to. Oh, I suppose they're mainly young, but presumably he wants those people to live. I, I know that I know that there's a big um, ACL sending people out to lobby, knock on people's doors, uh, things. This Australian weekend. Christian Could... lobby thing is that the same thing? Maybe I'm, I don't know. I... Anyway, this is this is a big thing I just, called. I, the... I got the email. I get the ACL emails telling me to you know give them money and uh, that they're going to save us all from the because they were campaigning for truth, Stuart. For truth, that costs a lot of money. Well, they've got a com- campaign against the corrupt left-wing atheist satanic media. So. Anyway, sorry, yes, the, the hat. The Hillsong, you think it's for the Hillsong? Well, immediately that Scott Morrison said that it would start Monday, people on on the social media started speculating about this event at Hillsong Norwest up in the Castle Hill region of Sydney. Big, very big up there. Uh, and also that, that the, uh, that the uh, rugby's on and his beloved... Cronulla Sharks are playing on Saturday evening, and he wants to and go he wants to that. All of their supporters to die. Like this is, what, this is what I don't get about the way that the right wing have dealt with like the Trump thing in America is is this prime example of it, where they've tried to minimise it. They've said tried to pretend that it's a, a a Democrat conspiracy. Well, everything's a Democrat conspiracy. But the problem is, so their voters skew older. Yes, their voters are more vulnerable, and they're like. You know, the, the Biden and Sanders are, you know, cancelling their, their rallies. And Trump's being like, no, we're going to have ours. They're encouraging their people to go out and spread it. They're going to kill their own supporters. Long term, yes. And and long term in this case is actually before uh, that first Tuesday in November, which Trump seems to find very important. Melbourne Cup Day. I don't quite get why they're not... And particularly now that they're using it as an excuse for the surplus thing. Like, there's no reason for this government to minimise at this point. In fact, surely their political uh, interest right now is in, in amping it up, making it, this is, you know, a, a once-in-a-century thing, as Frydenberg was trying to put it, and, and that's why... Uh, and I'm going to play a bit of the Frydenberg surplus stuff in a minute, because although surplus is an idiotic thing, the uh, interview he had with Lee Sales uh, the other day where he's trying to... Um, <laughs> explain how when he was saying to everybody last year, no, there's nothing that could possibly affect this. It's definitely going to happen. Uh, and then it isn't happening. He's like, yes, but we couldn't anticipate the things that are going to happen. You're like, we were telling you that there are things that you can't anticipate that's going to happen because that's what the passage of time means. The famous like, unknown unknowns. You with, you with me on this? The famous Donald Rumsfeld thing. There are known unknowns and unknown knowns. Well, actually, they're not unknown knowns. Known unknowns, I thought they were. No, there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns. So oh, known okay. unknowns are things that you don't know how they'll play out, but you know at least that they're a possibility. So, you know the parameters of them. Yeah. yeah. So you, you know that the Taliban might attack, but when is an unknown unknown? Okay. Uh, whereas an unknown unknown are the black swan events that they just come. That you didn't know that that was even a possibility, let alone that could happen. Yeah. So an unknown unknown is uh, the lizards rising out of the sewers and strangling all children under the age of 10. That's an unknown unknown, except now I know it because I've said it. This rabbit hole is terrible. Yeah, before we go down this rabbit hole, we'll come back to Frydenberg and, and he's, he's not sitting in a minute, but I would have thought that politically it's in the conservatives' interests at the moment to uh, ramp it up and to... In, you know, treat it with the utmost seriousness, particularly now that they've gone, we're going to spend $20 billion on it. So they, I don't understand why they would be... Their, their messaging is all over the place. Well, <laughs> nothing new there. To be like, it's an out of... Once in a century thing. Yeah, we've got to, we've got to deal with it. You know, we've got to spend all this money and the surplus to go. We've got to... You know, it's very serious. But we can wait till Monday. Do what you like over the weekend. I'm sure the virus will just take the weekend off. The other possibility, which is less tinfoil, is that... It's Friday afternoon, and if you want to tell people on a Friday afternoon their events on the weekend are cancelled, that doesn't give them much time to contact people and apologise and cancel and things. Uh, it's... Although, given the way you're frowning, I yeah, I mean, I'm not convinced myself. You no. just say, this is a thing we highly recommend, and then leave Everyone it Everyone is aware and, of it. And leave, leave like, it up to everyone... people to make their choice. 
Well, no, and I did you see the Paul? Car- so Paul Carp, I think he's like the, the political reporter for the Guardian, yes. and you saw his idiotic thing on Twitter where he was like, "Well, I don't understand why people have to, you know surely you can just leave it up to people's choice as to where they go or not. I don't know why it's anybody else's business other than people who attend." And you're like, because. You spread the virus. Yes. Those people then go out and spread it further. Like, they spread it to people who weren't at the match, the people who didn't go to the whatever the public event is. It spreads further. For every person that transmits it at that event, that's another vector that goes into the community. It harms all of us. Absolutely. And, and that that is... Well, you know, that's a pretty common misconception about how this works. And all the data modelling has to take this sort of thing into account. Now, New South Wales Health or Health New South Wales, I believe we we say these days, Uh, yesterday they started talking about uh, how there might be up to maybe 8,000 to 12,000 deaths in New South Wales over the course of the infection, which could be, you know, a year or something. So that comes back to the, we need to reduce that peak. At least a year until we get a vaccine or anything. Um, there are, yeah, it depends whether you ask Donald Trump or a, a vaccine research person. Yeah, so in the same room when Donald Trump is saying, oh, yeah, it could be just a couple of months, and then the person down the end of the desk who is competent in the field saying, no, it'll be at least a year. So I'm, going, I'm listening to that guy. Yeah, and, and you plan for worst-case scenarios in this, right? Uh, and, and Well, I would, but well, I'm, yes. I'm not Scott Morrison. Yes, so it's it's going to be a thing and it's going to be bad. The idea that, that this will be something over relatively quickly is just wrong. Yeah. And it seems to me that governments, not just here but around the world, are trying to stretch out actually having to tell people how bad things are going to get so they don't get frightened, or in Trump's case, so he doesn't look bad, or whatever it might be. I mean, Iran had that well, problem. Because if you took those... If you took the people off that ship, I mean, it would increase his numbers. Yes. It would be terrible. Well, It'd much better to leave them on the ship infecting each other. There's evidence out today, as we record this on the on the Friday, uh, that Trump actually didn't want the tests rolling out. And he made this order in January. Uh, so again, the numbers didn't come up. Now, well, And he was lying and saying that everybody who wants one... If that is true, then he is directly complicit in people's deaths. Oh, but for many more things, like all of the parts of the CDC, they, they wound yes. down. Um, but then, I mean, our, our government wound down big parts of the CSIRO as well that had yes. previously worked on this sort of stuff. So, you know, the problem with the ne- you know the neoliberals in charge is that they wind all of the public things down that are actually helpful for this stuff, and then those resources aren't available. When yeah, we, we haven't used this fire extinguisher uh, in 25 years, even though we have a let's maintenance person coming every year to service it. So let's not bother with that because it's, it's a waste of, money. of money. We could save that yes. maintenance cash. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, and then nothing changed. Like, this, this happens, it falls apart, and then they don't learn any lessons, and, and it's a complete schmuzzle for next time. Like, one of the things that I saw was that um, Singapore had learned from SARS, and so their approach was very much fired up from the very beginning and it's been quite effective in... They've had a very different experience to other countries in the region. And also some African countries like Senegal is test... Because they had Ebola right next door. They are, well, Mm. in African terms, right next door. And they have been incredibly effective at testing people. Yeah, like it's like there are things that human beings can do. This is not... It's not inevitable that we are going to have the devastating outcome that we're going to have. It's going to be a direct function of the attitude that the idiot... No, I will say, it is from the right-wing political economic philosophy that this is why this is happening. It's it's partly because of um, incompetent politicians who just are worried about the optics of everything rather than being cautious and saving lives. But the other part is that their very actions in uh, running down public resources and services that are specifically for things like this, this is the crunch point where that really hurts us all. And they really do need to be... We need. This is the point where the public needs to be like, okay, coronavirus is going to be a huge problem. A lot of people are going to die, and it's going to be... A, and, yeah, anybody who's like, well, I guess I'm a young person, it's probably not going to hit me too much. Like, that's a really sociopathic way of looking at things. <laughs> like that us hat in the newspaper yesterday. Which us hat was that? Oh, he describes himself as a property technology um, entrepreneur. And he's an asshat. I know, I know. It's shock, isn't it? But he'd been at some event in Hong Kong recently, came back to Sydney, uh, 
got tested, found he had coronavirus, and his whole thing is, um, look, I'm going to be fine, so everyone should just cut the hysteria. Yeah, and the people I spread it to who then will die, oh, well, they're not me. No. I mean, have they considered being me? Me? Well, that's just <laughs> I, I mean, as long as I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> uh, uh, dude. What I was going to say is that, like, where this virus is going to be deadly, but it's not going to be... I mean, there are viruses that are worse. Yes. This is going to spread very far and cause harm to people in certain groups more than others, but it's going to spread, and part of the reason it's going to spread is because it's so effective at... Uh, the transmission seems to be very effective, and the onset of symptoms seems to be slow enough that people have spread it a long way before they realise they're sick. Yeah, it's a lovely bit of kit, the coronavirus. Yeah, but the world could look at this as a warning, and the West could look at it like, you know, all of us in Australia and people in the U- US, people who are looking at the system for failing them here, who are like, oh, well, at least the odds are reasonably good that I'll survive it. But the next one, you might not. The next one might be 60 70% you know, morbidity. Like, this is the point where we should be looking at the countries that are doing a good job and going, it is not good enough to be doing this shit after the event. It is not good enough to be saying, it's not good enough for Scott Morrison today to be saying, go out there and, you know, if you feel okay, you know, well, that's... just go to a crowd, be in a crowd, that's fine. Like, how is he not competent enough to know that that's a dumb idea today? You know it. I know it. We're not experts in the subject. Any doctor can tell you that. Anyone who from any of the countries have been experiences can tell this. How is it that he's like, wait till after the weekend? It's just mind-blowing. And people are going to vote for him, and they're the same people who are going to... Well, this is the Australian way, Jeremy. It's the Australian way. Yeah, talking of, we've got the package. So his package, some bits are decent ideas, like the telehealth stuff. and um, But th- other things, like the really vital one about not spreading it, is surely you need sick leave for people not give them a payment to stay home that's a fraction of what they'd earn or because he's planning on setting out what is it, i think it's 40 dollars a day or the, and now they're going to instead of they were about to cancel the sickness benefit entirely yes so they're going to delay that a little bit now but 40 like that is not enough that it will be it's still a financial penalty for people staying home which means that people who are close to the wire which a lot of young people are people who are on who are doing these casual jobs you can say, well, we don't want to give them sick leave. I mean, they should have been... they sh- In the way that we couldn't anticipate it when we did our budget, they should have anticipated it and saved that tiny fraction of their casual loading for a, for a sick day. That's ridiculous. Is it mind-blowing to me that they cannot see, the Conservatives cannot see, that it is not in their interest for those people to go to work? If those people go to work, they will spread it. You need to give them an incentive to stay home, not a disincentive. Yes, well, look, but, but they are unworthy, as you know. They they are poor and it's their own damn fault. They should be hard-working Australian families. And I note, of course, that hard-working Australian families are who this uh, package is aimed at, except an awful lot of the money goes to the employers of those hard-working Australian families. That's madness, isn't it? Like, like the, the, just giving, giving businesses money to do what? Like, make their staff come to work and spread it? Yeah. <laughs> Businesses complain. Businesses have lobby groups. Uh, look, there's there's great stuff. The fact that the $750 just cash to do what you want with is going out to all of the Centrelink recipients pretty much and, and, and so on and families. Uh, of course, for people who are self-employed and don't have employees, such as myself, I don't get a cent, but whatever. I'm kind of used to not being a hard-working Australian family and therefore not counting. Uh, but there are lots of people who are going to have to start who do you know the gear economy stuff who are going to lose their work and oh they're screwed and then you see people like uber and i don't want to pick on uber in particular because there are a lot of awful companies not just uber uh who are saying and perhaps quite rightly that if they have drivers uh test positive then they'll have to be taken off now that's probably a good thing but then what happens no it isn't because it means they won't get tested <laughs> It means that drivers will simply mask the symptoms and refuse Absolutely, to because they've got to pay the rent too. This is pretty basic stuff. Yep. You could do what, what Italy did, which is have a moratorium on mortgages and rent. I don't know if they did rent. They should do mortgages and rent. Yeah, so who's paying for that? The government? I guess so. Or do they just tell... Well, the bank... I mean, the banks just don't get the money in. And then what, what about the people who are the property owners renting out to Muggins Me? Do they have the government paying... Anyway, this is not important. No, frank, frankly, they could just go with that for a bit. If they're not having to pay a mortgage, then they can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> to, to hell with the, to hell with the scumlord investors. 
Property investors are scum. <sighs> they're, they're, they're ruining. They're making housing unaffordable for the rest of us. Not not a huge amount of sympathy. This is class war, Jeremy. This is class warfare. It is, but it's the other way down. <laughs> like them, them ruining our lives. Look, if the libs really want the people at the bottom of the pile to do something as part of the class war back at them by, for example, spreading their disease, then by all means, make those people go to work. Make them and and. Tell you what, the other one that struck me that, that has, I don't think the government's really looked at at all, but, but this seems to me to be a really fundamental one, is the food industry. Like, how can anyone right now go out, buy, go to a restaurant, go to a fast food place, go to any place, know, knowing what we know about the underpayment and the wage theft, and we know that the, that the people who are working in those places are on low salaries and don't get sick leave, those people are going to be going to work. Those people are going to be spreading the virus. Sure. How can any sane person at this point go and buy food? And the only—it seems to me that the only way that you could you could be comfortable going and buying food right now is for restaurants to be putting up big signs in the front saying, "We are paying our staff to go stay home if they are in any way sick." They need the and the, the onus is on. And if they, you don't see something like that, if your local eatery or bakery or any kind of facility where they're preparing food, if they're not giving you some kind of over-the-top reassurance that they're making sure that sick staff are looked after and are at home, so not that they're, no, they're forcing them home if they cough, in which case they'll just suppress it, but that they are bending over backwards to make sure their staff are looked after and encouraged to stay home and, and protected from staying home, if they don't do that, you shouldn't be eating there. You shouldn't be... You're, you're taking your life in your hands to go there. We've already seen... Uh some serious messaging and whether it's true or not at obviously Chinese restaurants in Sydney early up a few weeks ago with signs up saying we disinfect every surface every day we are clean you know here's a photograph of our our cleaning products cupboard but you know you would put up a sign like that wouldn't you if you've suddenly had that's not the same as saying that's not the same as saying uh, we make sure that our staff are incentivized to err on the side of caution if they're you know if they've got a vague sniffle. And it's not that they come to us and then we send them home without pay because that means they will cover it up, but that they are encouraged to if if they're even vaguely sniffly, they will get their shift paid. We make sure that that happens. Otherwise, there'll be sick people at work and they'll be spreading it. Did you see that in I think it was in China? Uh, I think an ABC correspondent was showing this was that when they were having the food delivered. I think it was KFC of all things. Uh, which I think the joke being made was, if you're concerned about your health, it doesn't really matter what's on the outside, the contents of that package are the real problem. But anyway, so there's a... Ladies and gentlemen, I do distance myself from any negative comments about KFC and all other large corporate food operations that have big legal teams. No. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm simply saying that I, I, don't, I don't think that it's a, a, an unorthodox point that KFC is, has dubious... Uh, health benefits. As, there, look, there are some issues connected with it. I think that's well established. I don't feel that I need to defend it. Now I'm defending it. Let's move on quickly. Anyway, my point is that they had temper- the temperature readings of the person who prepared the food and the te- person who delivered the food like on the outside of the sealed package. I, I feel like that's a minimum sort of thing that you'd, you'd want at this point. Well, you do see uh, restaurants, uh, some restaurants have their latest health inspection report actually photocopied and stuck up on a wall near where you ordered too. With a fast-moving virus, that's probably not enough. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Well, the, hey, at our last inspection... The local council health inspector was here in, in October. None of us had coronavirus. Coronavirus free yeah. since October, as far as the yes. hell is better new. Now with fewer rats. It's a plus. So it feels to me like the protection, the, the determination to sit with, as you were saying, the class attitude towards casual workers and Christian Porter coming out and saying, no, I mean, they, they get a loading for this stuff. <laughs> no, they didn't anticipate it any more than you did. And it doesn't really matter because the point of it isn't you can be a total asshole and not care about the lives of the people, the casual people who we're saying that you should pay sick leave to. The point about paying them sick leave is that then they don't spread it to you by going to work when they're sick. You can be entirely self-centered about it. You benefit from them not doing that, particularly in the food sector. If I may make a suggestion, Jeremy, you, me, everyone, we need to kind of probably get less worked up about the stupidity of all this because this is going to go for another year and we're just going to be exhausted. Yes, I I call it having a podcast. (laughs) Fair point. I mean, if I was concerned with uh, protecting my sanity from 
stress and you know sad news i i would I, I wouldn't be doing the podcast and and if if our listeners felt like that then they probably wouldn't be listening to it the important thing is to keep aware and like the things that we are aware of because it's dangerous not to be to have some outlet for our natural feelings following ludicrous decisions by incompetent people who are endangering us all do you want me to read you the tweet from alexander downer yes read 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 out the the from it from our, our very competent former foreign minister. Former foreign minister. Former uh, leader of the opposition. Former high commissioner to the UK. Yeah, gentleman who uh, worked with ASIO to bug the Timorese negotiators and to... Well, ASIS. Oh, it was ASIS, yeah, to, to rip off the uh, Timorese in, in relation to the oil in there. Uh, when, they, when they were a fledgling nation and desperately needed resources. And apparently conspired with the British and the Italians... And some combination of somebody to get George Papadopoulos drunk. <laughs> yes, the, and, the Trump. Yeah, the Trump people don't like Alexander Downer. They think he's like an agent for the Clintons. So bad. Like the most blue blood Tory you could imagine being an agent for the Democrats. Purely on the basis that Downer is somehow helped pitch, give money to the Clinton Foundation for their charitable works. When they had political power and on behalf of the government or something. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah but that's fair enough. Anyway, this tweet is from uh, the 10th, which is Tuesday. So far this year, 4,000 people have died from COVID-19, 92,000 from flu, 320,000 from HIV AIDS, 256,000 from road accidents. Perspective. Yeah, but coronavirus is coming up on the inside very fast. Yes, and road accidents aren't contagious. <laughs> well, like when you have one, it can be contagious <laughs> to the, the vehicles ones. nearby. Yes. But no, let's just... And and there's this assumption that we're not actually trying to do anything about those other things when in fact quite a lot of effort is being put into those things. Yes. Look, if you want to make if you're coming out here and saying that what Alexander Towner tweeted was stupid and, and has not aged well and was never going to Well, I am proposing that as a working, you know, a working opinion. All right. Well, I'm not the person to be arguing that with because no. I, I Do you know what? I was, I was thinking about this the other day. I think that high school debating is a plague. Right. As a person who, you know, went through high school debating and then became a lawyer on, on the strength of it. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. And he's aware of all the people in Parliament uh, who started off, you know, doing the high school debating and all the lawyers who did that. I think it's a plague. It te- teaches people to argue things they don't believe in just for the, just the devil's advocate thing. It's just, it trains people to be assholes. It's a terrible terrible basis for anything it doesn't teach reason it teaches people to think that they're being reasonable when in fact they are just being you know sophists well no i i am in again in furious agreement with you because that is the plague upon both our houses ah i see what i did there of parliament no i got it because the debate the battle and you say this in question time it's done as if none of it has any actual consequences, that it's not related to the real world outside the building. It's just a game. It's just a game, and everything is about how well I, I, I did against the other side, and the scorecard is the opinion poll, and everything is forever analysed through the lens of the eternal campaign. And... Ah! And I, I find myself falling for this. So I try and look at, oh, how's the government responding to the coronavirus, blah, blah, blah. But sure, I was looking at the essential report polling on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and I was looking at how uh, uh, Morrison's ability to deal with events has gone up 2%, which is, of course, within the margin of error. What the? Blah, blah, blah. And then I think, why am I reading this? Why am I reading this? Well, because... Because it, like... it. T- it makes no sense, and it, and it sets your brain of like, I don't understand how that. Who is who is watching Morrison's performance and going, I've changed my mind about him. Oh, I think he's doing a bit. He's doing a good job. Who is who is concluding that, and how? Well, I don't think that anyone is. Two percent variation is within the margin of error, and also since the question was asked not yet, at least in the poll, within the context of coronavirus, but just broadly, you know, the usual fortnightly political polling. There's this assumption, you know, correlation is not causation. Just because the Canberra Press Gallery has focused on this thing that the Prime Minister did or that the leader of the opposition did, that therefore that is the thing that is affecting this next number, brackets, 
even though it's within the margin of error. And let's all froth and bubble about that and have a good old... I was about to say a word I shouldn't say. You've got to talk about something. <laughs> well, they could actually read some policy paper. I mean, this is this is the thing. Um, you then find, and I, I get worked up about this with some of my colleagues in the tech media, because the, quote, mainstream media, by which I mean people who are really just doing uh, the press gallery, they're not writing about the government. They're writing about politics. Yeah. So nothing really gets onto their radar until it's in the final debate before the bill is about to be voted upon for the third time. And by then, it's too late. It's really too late. It's too late. This has gone through the committees. It's gone through the public consultation. Um, and the classic example, uh, and obviously this is a big bugbear of mine, but the mandatory data retention laws about recording all of our telecommunications data for two years. And at the very end, the journalists wake up and go, oh, oh, no, 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 freedom of the press, protect our sources. All right, here's a little cutout just for you, which if they'd thought it through, and I can expand upon this extremely passionately if you wish, the cutout means nothing. Yeah. Well, it's the same with the religious discrimination bill that's coming through at the moment, that they're, that's just sneaking its way through. There's, there's you know, yep. increasing... There are people who don't like it, but it's still alive. It hasn't been, hasn't been killed. And, and part of that is that if you don't argue against... So, like, you know, they need to look at the other side. If something progressive is being proposed, then there'll be a, there'll be a huge amount of media column inches to kill it very early on before it gets yes. anywhere. But these horrible little nasty right-wing-like things just sort of sneak through until the final vote, which means that the opposition to them is not being organised. I think that's that's a bit cynical to say it's it's partisan in that way because I think if uh, the, the left-hand side of politics was in power at the moment, uh, we could make exactly the same... Depends what you mean by left-hand. Do, le- do you mean like <laughs> the ALP? Uh, uh. Yes, because they're, they're fairly <sighs> conservative. I, I want to bang my head on the table now. Can I do that? Why? I, I just everything is left versus right. Everything is is Labor left enough? No, no. My point. Uh, my point count. is that yes, uh, that wasn't a go at you. That was a go at the universe. The universe fails to live up to my standards, Jeremy. Well, I'm ma- I'm mainly interested in them being able to get uh, th- 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 things that are harmful to people's um, liberties, like the religious discrimination stuff that that harm vulnerable groups. Don't progress, but they do, and they and, and the ALP is still. Know, giving it lip service and 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 pretending that there's some merit to it, rather than it being the outrageous attack on LGBTI people that it clearly is and always was intended to be, and so it keeps bubbling along. Whereas if it's something like we need to increase New Start to a livable level, at least subsistence. Yeah, I mean, actually, to say the poverty line would be nice. Yeah, then that gets killed very quickly, but that doesn't get very far because. I, I do think the I think the left, as in the people who are advocating for better spending for the poor, at the expense of the rich, do are pushing uphill in the sense that, weirdly enough, there aren't all that many like lefty lefty newspaper proprietors and media owners. Like weirdly enough, money <laughs> tends to control those things, and it's not in money's best interests to be sharing the benefits. So I I don't think that it is an equal. Both sides have the same power and influence. Because one side is doing the interests of money, and therefore, and money has that effect in certain. Money has a certain, you know, yeah. energy about it. So I don't think it's an even fight. I don't think it's like whereas whereas there's only so much you do by putting a twibbon on your Twitter account. Yes, well, or signing a petition, or actually doing anything at all beyond what you can do from your own desk, as opposed to recording a podcast, which is really changing things, uh, which fixes it all certainly, problems. Yeah, it, it, makes, it moves things in the right direction, definitely. Well, quit, before we quit the coronavirus stuff, I'm going to play uh, the audio of Josh Frydenberg with Lee Sales this week and his attempt to try to explain why this surplus, which they were never going to achieve even before the bushfires or before the drought, and the drought and the bushfires were 100% predictable and were predicted by many people the virus wasn't but the other factors certainly were but even before they came up they were never it was always highly dubious that they were going to hit a surplus and then the factors that were clearly anticipated hit and then they definitely were you know even less likely to hit it but they're trying to blame it on the one that's 
once in a century. They're trying to say this is the thing that took it out of control. So other than that, we'd be fine because of the power. You know, it's like the old John Howard thing when he used to campaign, interest rates will always be lower under us than under the Labour Party. And you're like, have you got a like a machine that helps you travel to a parallel universe? Can you bring <laughs> back the evidence for that claim? Like, we only get to see one of you at a time. We can't... That's a meaningless claim. It's a nonsense claim. <laughs> we've, we've brought the budget back into balance next year. Yeah. And... Liesel starts this interview by asking him what it says about his maturity. And I would have said that the, the question there isn't so much his maturity. What's it say about your credibility and the amount to which voters should in any way believe any other claims you make? Because you didn't, again, you weren't saying we think we're on track for a surplus. You were saying we've achieved a surplus in the future. You were claiming it as a thing you'd achieved. In the future. 100% rock solid. Anyway, Lee does play him some of the earlier interviews. So you won't be able to, the audio will just play. Um, you won't be able to see what was on the screen. But the, mm-hmm. audio, the, the interviews that she plays him are from April last year. Last year, you were claiming credit for a surplus that you'd not yet delivered, saying the budget was back in black. You were warned at the time that global events could derail that prospect, which they now have. What does your premature rush to claim credit for a phantom surplus say about your political maturity and judgment? Well, we took the best possible advice and based on the forecasts at the time, and we have delivered a balanced budget. And as for a surplus, well, we've made it very clear and the Prime Minister made that very clear today. And we've now taken um, these major spending decisions and, but, and the, but, surplus won't, the surplus won't arrive in 1920 as a result claimed, of some of these circumstances we've seen. But Treasury, you claimed credit for something that you hadn't yet delivered. And I'm just wondering why you did that when at the time you were warned that events could derail it and they have. Well, we were based, we made our, our presentation based on the forecasts at the time. And clearly when it comes to the fires, the flood, the extended drought, and now uh, the coronavirus, the economy has been hit by a number of external economic shocks that have been beyond our control. But, but when it comes to can our I, response, can I, sorry we, to, we can sorry, control that. Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, you say, you know, these external shocks, you couldn't have seen them coming. Treasury budget uh, papers did warn about this kind of thing. I want to play our audience something uh, from around the time of the budget last year. But like any projection, your ability to deliver that $7 billion surplus is reliant on factors that are outside your control. It might not happen. No, it will happen, and it's the product of bringing the spending under control. There might be a collapse in China. There might be another terrible drought. Then You might have to write down the NBN. Things can happen. Uh, that, that could have prevent you actually achieving this? Well, this is not a wafer-thin surplus. This is a very significant surplus. You did know things could happen. Well, we maintained that those were the forecasts at the time. We were pretty conservative when it came to, for example, our commodity price assumptions. Uh, they're even tracking below today. Uh, the prices are above today uh, what we actually forecast back then. But what we could not foresee and what you couldn't foresee and what the global economy could not foresee was this one-in-a-century event, uh, namely uh, the spread of the coronavirus, which is putting the shutters up on the global economy. I'm reminded there of something uh, Bernard Keane said once. He's a political editor of Crikey. He said that uh, political journalism lives in the perpetual present uh, and politicians assume that, that what happened a year ago uh, is forgotten. It's just about what is now. You know, it, it's the 1984, oh, the chocolate ration is up to 20 grams, even though it was 30 grams last week. I've, I've actually called it uh, a number of times uh, the idea that we're governed by hallucinating goldfish. Goldfish for the, the fact that no one remembers anything from the past. But the hallucinating part is that we live in to medicalise it, which is an awkward thing to do, but a kind of paranoid schizophrenia that that everything is, is um, you know, crime wave, even though crime is at a, a low historically and is forever trending downwards, that, you know, African gangs are taking over Melbourne and the poor are constantly doing bongs, uh, that migrants uh, simultaneously steal our jobs and are on the dole. Mm. Uh and everyone goes along with it. And what that shows nicely is, and Lee Sales does this sometimes, but like all journalists... Nowhere near enough. Nowhere near enough. That is actually going back down the memory hole, if you like, and saying, no, no, the, the, the reality you are trying to sell today is, is not real. 
it reminded me of the uh, fact that you know there's a, there's always a tweet with Trump. Like there's always a anything <laughs> that Trump does is a, there's a Trump tweet from like four years ago of him bashing Obama for the same thing or flat out declaring that 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 I think I think there was um, was it SARS or was it uh, there was something else that that and he was basically saying if anybody gets sick from it that Obama should have to go out and, and hug them or something. <laughs> yes, um, yes, it's there's always but. Look, I think you're right, and I think that's one of the great failures of the press gallery and and the journalists. Like, they will look at the historical past, you know, a generation ago. You know, the ABC's got their podcast now about the the dismissal. They'll look at stuff that's old, but they won't they won't look at stuff within the lifetime of this politician and the things that this politician's done and said recently. Uh, and th- what leads it here is really unusual, and it should be really common. And the effect of that would be that politicians would have to be more cautious about the things that they claim, and particularly things that they claim about the future, because they would know that they would be being called back on it. Like, Frydenberg last year was being not even vaguely cautious. It would have been really easy for him to say, we're on track for a surplus. Our measures, you know, our spending, uh, unless something extraordinary happens, our spending is a surplus so it's, we've got we're bringing more revenue i don't i mean it never really made any sense how they how they possibly were going to manage a surplus whilst slashing revenue like they did last year but anyway well the point is that that was a pre-election budget and an election they expected to lose so that was purely about uh, reducing the loss yeah knowing that they wouldn't actually have to execute upon this plan because this plan was clearly ludicrous and, and then, of course, on Saturday evening, the votes came in and everybody across the nation went, oh, wait, wait, no, this this wasn't what we expected. And now they've ended up, hey, you've got to run. You, no, you actually have to run the country now. This is what you wanted, isn't it? You did want to run the country. It wasn't the drought. It wasn't the, it wasn't the floods. It wasn't the bushfires. It wasn't the coronavirus. The real thing that changed from April last year is that they won by accident and what they were trying to set Labor up for bit them. Absolutely. And it was ne- never credible. But yeah, that's really important because they're trying... Yes, the five-dimensional chess had a sixth dimension. They're trying to sell us this turd pretending that it's, it was going to be fine and that you know, they really did deliver it you know, if you don't count the coronavirus. Like, or the bushfires. Yeah. Or the floods. Was his heart, the bushfires and the floods are harder because it's pretty hard to argue that you couldn't anticipate that they were going to that they were going to be bushfires and floods like their whole no, but could, you could have anticipated that, for example, in New South Wales, cutting thirty five percent or whatever it was out of the National Parks and Wildlife Service uh, or Department of Environment people, it's all so complicated. Well, See, that's that, what I'm saying. Even that is poor governance because who's actually running this tree? Yeah, uh, this, the the way the the split between the federal government and the states on the fire stuff is i mean and the fact that so much is left to volunteers for fire so for fire yeah i mean there's a lot a lot there that could have been fixed and for 20 years people or 30 years people were saying hey bushfires are going to be a bit more of a thing you might need to pay attention to that but the problem with the a large part of their supporters have bought the line that, that the bushfires weren't out of particularly out of the ordinary I, I have relatives who will tell oh, and me. And they've also bought the line that it was arsonists. Yeah. Everything's arsonists. And there's a Sky <gasps> News poll which... killed the surplus. Arsonists have started the virus. killed the surplus. They've started the virus. Surf- it's arsonists again. Yeah, surplus. God, God damn those arsonists. They were starting, you know, setting they floods. They started floods. floods. <laughs> yep. They, uh, and the and viruses. Spreading viruses. Uh, arsonists. Always the arsonists. Anyway, no. My point is that, that the floods and the fires are things that, that part of their messaging is... Although Scott Morrison, when trying to make excuses for it, he's like, it's unprecedented. But the other half of the time, their party and the Nationals are saying, no, these are totally within range. Nothing's really changing. Don't worry about it. It's like their messaging is deliberately confusing because they're trying to pander to you know, people who think climate change is, is, a, is a left-wing conspiracy and people who are recognising that it exists but would rather... Well, that works, that works just fine because people will remember the stuff they agree with and reject the stuff they don't agree with. So it really doesn't matter if you just spray out a whole lot of inconsistent stuff. Well, no, it does. It, it, by bit... some magic process, <laughs> the, no, the it... bits stick to where they need to stick. Well, it seems to work for the Liberals, but it doesn't work for Labor because, of course, Labor um, was bitten when it was trying to have it both ways on Adani in the election. Yes. And people in Queensland didn't believe that they supported it, and people in Melbourne didn't believe that they opposed it because their messaging was quite contrary in both places. And because it was on a specific a specific project, the people who were really opposed to it and the people who were really in favour of it 
remembered the wavering from the other side. They remembered the bit they didn't agree with stronger than the bit that they did agree with. Gee, there's a PhD in political science there for someone waiting to be done, isn't there? Why is that one that way around? Is it because Bill Shorten is such a dynamic and impressionist? I think it's because Adani is a very specific project, whereas one, well, the big pro, the big project um, of the last couple of decades from the fossil fuel lobby has been to muddy the waters. And have you have you heard this? There's a podcast called Behind the Bastards. Have you heard Behind the Bastards? No. Uh, they they basically go into uh, yeah the the worst people in history as much as possible. But anyway, the most recent one was about the um, oil lobby, um, the the big big oil companies who knew in from like nineteen fifty nine uh, that climate change was real and the difference between the material that they were producing internally, which was actually really good science, setting out all the ways it was going to screw us all, and the external material which they were proposing. To, to fudge it all and and the, the huge disconnect there it was just so uh, unbelievably shameless so yeah in relation to climate change i suspect that the reason why that one um the libs can get away with fudging playing both sides a bit is that it's a mess and they've deliberately made it a mess that makes sense although really they came into it with a mess and a mess seems to be uh, the modus operandi of Scott Morrison, Australia's greatest prime minister in all of history. Uh, <laughs> it is astonishing to me that, that the Labor Party could possibly have a leader who is unable to get ahead of Scott bloody Morrison. It's just just appalling. Mm-hmm. Future Jeremy here. There's a section here where, because people have been asking us what we thought of the Sarah Hansen-Young situation, as people who are reasonably sympathetic to the Greens political party, we then had a discussion about that situation involving Sarah Hansen-Young and the character reference she gave. But because it's a matter involving family violence and the two people on the podcast this week are both men, I'm not hugely comfortable with us having had that discussion. We were coming at it from a position of trying to address the issue in a constructive way for victims of family violence, but I just think that it's too fraught an issue for us to be discussing with this particular balance of people. So I'm not going to upload that, and we're going to just move straight on to the farewells. Look, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for uh, to our Patreon supporters for helping the podcast keep running because there are costs involved in doing it. And uh, thank you, Stagarian, for coming on. How can people find you on the toots and on the... Uh, well, we've already said it, at the 9pm edict on, on the podcast apps. Yes. And also at Stilgarian. On the Twitters uh, and Stilgarian.com, which has links to my writing and stuff. The one useful thing about having a globally unique name is that if you spell it slightly wrong, Google will fix it for you. It's true, but it also <laughs> means that you must never ever do anything that's uh, that's going to come back to bite you because they will no. sit on the Google res- re- results forever. Oh uh, yeah, I've already screwed that. What I would, what I, we'll try and get you to come back when we've got some more sort of tech type issues to discuss too, because I think that's, that'd be lovely. Uh, so thank you for coming back. Thank you to everybody My for pleasure. listening, and we will. See See you all next week. Bye. You can find Well May We Say at wellmaywesay.com or in the usual podcast apps. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production, but that one wasn't. Sorry.